You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My friend, licensed therapist, coworker, Sam Dalton is here, and we are diving all into 1989. How are you on this Monday? Sam, after having a weekend to digest the new album. I've actually tried really hard to like keep it to myself. <laughs> You're saving it all for, for today. Truly. Like my friends have been like, what do you think? And I'm like, you can hear it when it drops. Like that's. <laughs> you can hear it in the silence. <laughs> yes. And we are in love with this album just in general, like the yes. 1989 album. is yes. insane. What are, Love what are, it. how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited to get into it. I am slightly disappointed with Slut, although it's growing on me. So we can get into that. But overall, obvious, I mean, it's not a surprise. I think that this so far is the best Volt selection that we've had. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think she's done a really great job at nailing all of it. I mean, I don't know. I am in it for, obviously, I love the sound. I, I love the pop of it all. But I'm also in this for the lyrics. So the lyrics don't change pretty much, except for last, you know, obviously she's changed a couple lyrics before. But I don't get as obsessed with like the tiny breathlessness or the teeny micro movements that other people I think do. What about you? No, I, okay. So how I listened to it was the day before it dropped, I listened to OG 1989, start to finish, no skip. And I was like, this is such a good album. Yeah. Like, it is such a good album. And so I had the original in my mind Yeah, when we got the re-release. And so at midnight, started at Slut and then just listened to those. Yeah. And I went back the next day and listened to the rest of the album start to finish. And I saw by that point that some people were like really, really flustered with style. Mm-hmm. I I wasn't upset by it. I wasn't either. I was, no, I wasn't upset by style. Out of the Woods is incredible. Yes, I agree. Somehow the drums became even more insane on the track. Her voice is just so much stronger. I feel like the best thing yes. they did on this album was pulled her voice apart from some of the yes. instrumentation. So you can just hear it more clearly where I think they use some of the instrumentation to not cover up, but soften some of the maybe weaker points. Mm -hmm, 100%. And I also, I think she went really synth heavy. Mm -hmm. If you listen, like even with the vault tracks, if you listen to the other songs as well, like on Welcome to New York, yeah, it feels much stronger. And so I think if you listen to style with that perspective in mind, that to me, it sounds, the Mm. guitars sound a little more synthy. Yeah. That's not a word, but I just made it up. (laughs) But I enjoyed the thing start to finish. Yeah. I mean, I really don't have major or minor problems with it at all. I I wonder how I would feel how I would feel if she was re-recording Folklore Evermore or something more recent. Yeah. Because I'm much more attached to breaths and whispers and ways she said certain things more recently, I think, where I, yes, there are a couple differences I noticed, but I really have to listen to them back to back slowly to really see the differences. And I can't tell whether that's just me and I'm like, my ear is not as attuned or if I just don't care as much or if I would care more with newer stuff because this album is like 10 years old. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to have to go process that with my therapist. <laughs> <later on. laughs> 
because that's uncomfortable. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm like this. I'm actually really easy to please. Like, I just think it's incredible that she's going to this yeah. effort to do this. So I'm just like, you go, girl. Like, yeah. you and Jack were in the studio listening to this and the spirit told you this is what it's, it's <laughs> going to be. And you ran with it. And I'm just like, okay, that's great. Yeah. I also think besides my personal little like moments that I'm attached to, we're not musicians. So <laughs> I feel like <laughs> someone could be like, this did this instead of that. And I'm just like, I don't know. Sounds good to me. I still enjoyed it the same, if not more. So I guess, I yeah, don't don't come for us in the DMs. Yes. We're just two <laughs> therapists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're more invested in the lyrics and the mental health components. And that's yes. probably why we are going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the vault tracks because that has a lot of new material to kind of dive into. So Sam, you have a theory about the vault tracks. Tell me about that. Yes. Okay. My whole thing is, as I was listening to these vault tracks specifically, the so came out what, Friday? Thursday night, Friday? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Friday and Saturday, I actually went back and I listened to the other vault tracks from mm. Fearless Red and Speak Now. Yeah. And I was thinking, because what triggered that for me was when I was listening to, I had finished the vault track. I said to myself, how is it that Shake It Off Mm -hmm. made the final track listing? (laughs) And Is It Over Now didn't. Yeah. Or Suburban Legends didn't. Yeah. Or We Don't Talk Now, We Don't Talk Anymore. You know, like I was so confused and I was thinking about it and I went back and I listened to the other vault tracks from the other re-releases. And I feel like for artistry and her mastery of lyrics and storytelling is just in your face in the vault tracks yeah and what i realized is she has known her entire career this is what she's good at Mm -hmm. she didn't just wake up during lover and say wow like i'm a storyteller yeah she's known that this whole time and she's known that's what we want and that's why we're bonded to her as an artist and i think when she keeps saying in interviews after each of these re-releases that i had to make really hard decisions i had to make really tough decisions i had to leave some things behind i feel like her management Mm -hmm. just kept trying to shove her into the pop box Mm. and we're not letting her tap into this other side of herself that had so much depth and such an intimate understanding of the human experience and specifically the female experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of what frustrated her for years and years and years is they would not let her release these songs that were so incredibly powerful and important to her. And they were like, give us a pop hit. And she was like, Mm -hmm. okay, shake it off. Give us a pop hit. Okay, me. Yeah. Right. These songs that she knew, some of us were like, it's fun to dance to. I mean, I wonder also, because I do think finally, right, in Midnight, she picked the right single. I don't know if this is someone saying it or she actually is quoted saying this, but there was something about how she purposely picks a Mm. single off of the the lead album that is extremely poppy that will do really well on radio hits. And she kind of does that Mm. also on purpose as like someone said like a red herring. But like that doesn't totally track with me because I – feel like she wants to put out the best thing that she has. But I wonder if based on what you're saying to right, like based on her management, mm-hmm. based on what she believes or what she's been told in the industry that to be a pop star, to be successful, she said that she always thought that you had to release albums in a certain way, in a certain order, promo, and that I think she's picked songs because me was manufactured 
to be a pop hit. It was not, I mean, based on what we can see in Miss Americana, it was not like just inspirational writing. She was trying to make it. I mean, people thought it was literally like for a movie. They didn't even think it was the lead single off of Lover. So I wonder too, if it's, it's, both. It is just that she also had very limited constraints of what she thought she needed to do to be commercially successful to then have access to people listening to the whole album. And clearly, she is a marketing mega mind. So I'm sure there's yes. a strategy behind all this. But I was not <laughs> privy to. I was not CC'd on the emails. Yeah. So this is just me thinking about <laughs> the insanity of how powerful some of these vault tracks are and the maturity that it requires to write about some of these themes at such young, vulnerable ages and to make to make sense yes. of these heartbreaks at very unique ages and times and transitions in life and I just don't not many artists have captured that the way she has totally I totally agree yeah I mean there's a I'll link it in the show notes there's a podcast Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about called Mm -hmm. every single album and they talked about which I I think this makes really good sense as a theory that they think that maybe they were working on the vault tracks of 1989 and then Midnight's came Mm -hmm. as kind of an outpouring of that work. And I think that makes so much sense because there are so many parallels Mm -hmm. in production Mm -hmm. of those songs. What do you think about that? I completely see the link between Midnight's and the 1989 vault tracks, totally. I actually also feel that Suburban Legends is a foil to Long Live. Tell me more about that. So Long Live, in my mind, is this very nostalgic mm-hmm. feeling, homecoming yeah. king, homecoming queen. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have this brief moment in the sun where you're the most popular person in the room and you happen to yeah. do it with the person that you had feelings for at the time. And it's like, hey, I'm going to look back on this with huge hard eyes, I hope you are the same, right? This very mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. high school aged nostalgic vibe. And yeah, I feel yeah. like Suburban Legends is the exact opposite of that. It's the high school relationship mm. gone totally wrong. And you kind yeah. of, you know, like where she says, our mixed star signs were going to surprise people. And, yeah. you know, it, it didn't. And we were born to be suburban legend, have this like insane, yeah. you know, high school age love story, but she sees it yeah. for what it is. Yeah. Well, I think there was a big tie too to Midnight Rain mm. and suburban legends. Right. So in Midnight Rain, obviously there's the whole picture perfect family, you know, peppermint candy, all of that, this picture perfect stuff that she's also alluding to in Suburban Mm. Legends. But all of the stuff of, right, she says in Suburban Legends, you were too polite to break my heart. I broke my own heart because you were too polite to do it. Exactly. Yes. Where in Midnight Rain, right, obviously he wanted comfortable. She wanted the pain. Broke his heart because he was nice. And then in Suburban Legends... I broke my own heart because you were too polite to do it. So I think they have a similar vibe also just in high school, in connection. I think that this is probably about someone she dated in high Mm -hmm. school. Even the line, right, I didn't come here to make friends, kind of you could infer of I didn't come to Nashville to make friends. She came to Nashville to become famous. So yeah, I think that's interesting. And I could see how if you're working on Suburban Legend, it then ends up being maybe Midnight Mm -hmm. Rain or something Mm -hmm. like that. There are a lot of parallels, which I think is what's so cool about The Vault. 1989 was 
always like, yes, I knew there were songs about Harry Styles, but it was purposely done, I think, to be a little more vague, Mm -hmm. which makes sense after Red and all the critiques she had on Red of how Jake Gyllenhaal forward Mm -hmm. it was. So it's really cool to see The Vault really kind of fills in the the gaps of of what all these songs were about. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And natural Mm -hmm. compared to the others. The others, like for Fearless, there's a huge tone difference between the vault tracks and the main album. But I think these re-releases matched the tone of the original album most closely. Yes. And I think that makes sense given what we know about how painstaking she was in this process about wanting it to be sonically cohesive. A lot of these songs seem cut because they were either too obvious giveaways of other songs of what they were about. Like a lot of the Harry Styles coded ones really lend you to see how the other songs written on the album are also probably about him. And I think there's just overlap in their kind of saying the same thing in some ways that I think is why she chose to cut some of them. Maybe except for Slut. I think Slut is saying something a bit different. Yeah, Slut was surprising. Yeah, what were your expectations or hopes and dreams about Slut? I thought it was going to be a style level banger about kind of pushing back on societal expectations and the things that everybody was saying about her at the time and kind of a place for her to process the rage that she probably Mm -hmm. experienced at that time for the double standard that she was being held to. And instead it came on and I was like, whoa, yeah, this is an incredibly thoughtful, laid out experience of, I already, like, there was almost a calm to it. It was like resignation. Yes, I know, I know. They're gonna, you know, I'm gonna pay the price you won't. Yeah. She knew it. There was there wasn't any angst about it. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping for the same. I think I was really hoping for a "I bet you think about me" mm-hmm. sort of vibe, where it's yes. like she had to cut it because it was so angry and obvious that she just felt like it would be too distracting from the album, which is kind of how I think about "I bet you think about me." And I thought we were going to get like a music video on it, similar to that, and the whole thing. And yeah, I mean, it's like sad. It's just like it's resigned. It's sad. It's growing on me more. Yeah. I was kind of really not super into it when I first heard it. There is a lot of really beautiful imagery in it. And Mm -hmm. I I do think the line, as we've said, you know, I'll pay the price you won't is really powerful. And interesting that she put that one as the first one. It is. I have a lot to say about now that we don't talk. Yes. Tell me about it. There's a lot of people that relate to that in relation to a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. I thought about friendship. Mm. I felt that it's so, it, especially when she says she called her mom and yeah. her mom said, this is for the best. Yeah. Right. As women, how many of us who happen to have that type of relationship with our mom call and have that conversation and what does mom do? Right. This like Oracle type vibe of like, I was just waiting for you to come to this. But that was, that was what I thought about is this idea of this person. And I guess it's really, it's totally fluid, right? It it's, yeah. it goes either way. But I think just to so like strongly encapsulate that feeling of this person that you once knew everything about them mm-hmm. and you knew everything that was going on in their life. And like when she yeah. says, you know, you parted a crowd like the Red Sea, but were you yeah. anxious on the way home? Yeah. Like that mm-hmm. is a level of intimacy that when a relationship, a friendship or a romantic relationship ends, it feels like so 
the void is just huge. This understanding yeah. that you once had of this person and now you're like, I don't even remember the last time I spoke to you. And so I like I thought it, it was a really powerful way to describe the impact of when relationships end. Yeah. I really love, you know, how she talks about things she doesn't have to pretend to like. I think a lot of <laughs> us relate to that is pretending to be someone that you're not in order yep. to impress someone, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friend. I related to that so much. And I, I think it's funny because to your point earlier about just how we forget, I think how old she was when she wrote this album. It's just so interesting because I always think of 1989 as her in the promo of 1989. Yes. When we have to think about how actually Red Taylor wrote 1989 and how young she was when you look at pictures of her and Harry Styles, oh. she is just a child. Child. <laughs> and I think about myself and all of the ways in college I pretended to be different people with friends. Yeah, I, I know her age, her age when I listen to these re-releases is what strikes me. I could not make sense of heads or freaking tails when I was 18 to 24 years old. Well, it's like so sad too to think about 1989 now that we know more of what she was going through mentally yes. and physically and everything like that. And just my heart breaks for how disappointed she was. I mean, obviously, you know, like we can say, oh, she's just lucky that she's won a Grammy at all, right? But <laughs> she was very disappointed when she didn't win Red. And I relate so much to the concept of someone gives me a piece of feedback and then I just like reinvent myself around that feedback. And I thought it was just brilliant in Miss Americana when she talks about how when you do that, right, you can end up being this totally different person than you even meant to, not because you chose to to make, you know, those choices, not because you thought about it, but because you realize your whole personality is a reaction to someone giving you feedback. And that is just like a lot. I think you can relate to this as a, as a fellow therapist. You You can straddle two worlds, right? We can straddle the clinical world while also straddling the normal world. And I think because we're listening to these tracks in, in layered ways, right? Like mm -hmm. we're hearing the themes, we're hearing the, you know, the alarming lyrics that yeah. are coming across and thinking of how young she was and how vulnerable she was. And so, you know, we're hearing it from that frame of more of a observatory lens. Mm -hmm. While then feeling equally triggered, being like, oh, I remember when you have the thought of jumping off of really tall things yes. so that he'll come running. I remember, you know, like maybe yeah. not being in a frame of reference that dark, but that similar vein of what can I do to get your attention and how do I morph myself and change myself? to be exactly what you want to be so that I can get that attention. Yes. I think a lot of us when we're younger, we truly believe it is something about us physically or mentally or something changeable about us mm -hmm. that if we changed it, the person would stay. And it's like wild to think about how I used to think if I like had, you know, perfect hair. I used to genuinely think if I was someone who just always was more put together and like always had a full face makeup on or something that that would make someone stay. And it is like in some ways not exciting, but it feels better, I think, to think to yourself something like that that is quote unquote fixable. Yes. Yes. Then being like, oh, this relationship just doesn't work because we're, we're not compatible. <laughs> Because no. I think what we always forget is there's another person on the other end of that mm. 
just as insecure as we are, they just yeah. show it in different ways. Yeah. Right. So, so if yeah. we, if we tend to be a people pleaser, more prone to conforming that fits the person's narrative of, I need somebody that's just like me mm-hmm. to make that connection work. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't feel good enough or knowledgeable enough to tolerate their differences. So I'm going to make them conform to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's predictable. So yeah, it's such a raw, vulnerable place to be. And it takes so much freaking work to climb that mountain and understand the triggers to that and figure out how to have peace with the level of discomfort that comes with a relationship ending simply because you realize it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. To go to back to, to what you were talking about with friendship, I think that that is a lot of times how friendship breakups happen yes. as well. Or right, like someone just loses touch or something happens and it is so much more painful because of the lack of closure, because of the lack of understanding. I mean, I had quite a bit of like my own trauma in terms of friendship growing up was because I had several people. I mean, I moved a lot growing up and I went to a bunch of different schools, which caused insecurity. But I also had instances where several friends just stopped talking to me and stopped being my friend without explanation. And It is something almost everyone I talk to, every woman I've talked to has experienced, but like we really don't talk about it very much. And I've actually done it to someone and I didn't even realize, like I was literally walking the other day thinking about this in preparation for this episode and I was like, oh my God, I've also done that. I mean, I think we could also go into diagnosing or not diagnosing, but we could go into understanding, right, society and how I think especially Western society is so conflict avoidant. And especially if you're a people pleaser, right, you are going to actually be more likely to be conflict avoidant. But yeah, I think that it's so interesting. Just wanted to pop in here really quick and share that now that summer is officially over, it is a great time to get back into therapy or to start therapy for the first time. My practice therapy for women has licensed therapists in 27 states across the country, or if you're local to the Philadelphia area, we have a few offices for in-person therapy as well. I'm also so excited to share that we have officially launched Therapy for Kids, which is our sister practice, and we will serve kids ages five and up. We have specialized pediatric therapists who can't wait to meet your kids, who also can support your family with parent coaching and family therapy if you live in the Pennsylvania area. Learn more at therapyforkidscenter.com. I was just also thinking of, you know, kind of keeping with this vein of friendships. I was thinking of her parade of model friends. Mm-hmm. Think of that opportunity. Like I, I was such like an insecure little kid. I was thinking back to when she also said, you know, think of the best day, right? Mm-hmm. She's literally talking about she got bullied into the ground and yeah. her mom tries her best to make it better. I was there. I've yeah. been there. Like there was a group of friends that I was a part of when I was little and I confronted them about how I was finding out they were hanging out without me. And this one girl looks at me and says, well, maybe you should think about finding new friends. I'm not going to falter for that. We were like 14, 15 years old, but that sticks with you. Those moments stick with you. And no matter how much work you do, those triggers still exist. You just get better at managing them. So imagine you go through that kind of in your teenagers feeling like you don't fit in. And then all of a sudden your early twenties, you're the biggest thing on the planet and the most popular, beautiful people in the world want to be in your mm-hmm. orbit. Totally. I would absolutely do the same thing. I would probably be worse. <laughs> probably worse. Of course I would be like, look at all my friends on stage. Look at us model walking to style. Look at how cool we are. And then that is why 
nobody physically saw her for a year because she had to go figure out who she was. You want something so bad. And if you haven't done the work to understand why you're wanting it, you Mm. will catch yourself falling on the sword every day of the week. Yeah. If you're not going to figure out why am I clinging to this with both fists, getting rope burn, it's the most painful thing I've ever done. If you can't figure out Mm. why you're doing that, you will fall on your face every single time. And then you get back up and you're like, why do I always feel like I'm being betrayed? Yeah. Why do I always feel like I'm the one getting stomped on? I'm the doormat. I'm the fall guy, right? Like if you're not going to figure out why you have no boundaries, Mm. if you're not going to figure out how you can have difficult conversations with people in your life about when you're feeling hurt or disappointed or dejected, you will perpetually be falling on the sword and be pissed about it. Yeah, totally. And it's it's really hard. I mean, I remember graduating college. I was just a terrible friend in college because of my addiction, everything like that. And I kept saying that over and over again to my therapist is, why does this keep happening to me? I'm so nice. I'm so wonderful. Why do I keep getting into these arguments with friends? Why can't I keep friendships? And it was like, we're not saying, I think that everything is your fault, but there is something powerful about standing in. If this is a pattern that's happening over and over again, Mm -hmm. how am I contributing to this pattern? It's painful, but it's really powerful. Yeah. Why do I stare directly at the sun and never in the mirror? (laughs) Yeah. I I call myself out with that quote sometimes. If you're finding these patterns in your life, you're 100% correct, Amanda, when you said like, it's not that everything is always your fault all the time. Absolutely. But one of the best questions my therapist ever asked me was, how did you contribute to the dynamic of this situation? Mm -hmm. I'll say it one more time. How did you contribute to the dynamic of this situation? Right. And that allows room for so much grace. There's no Mm -hmm. blame there. There's no shame. There's no judgment. It just is. Yeah. It's like, what can you be responsible for? Right. And sometimes I think it's coming out of that there is a a winner, a loser, there's right and there's wrong. And it's just, even if I don't think this is the truth is what I say to myself sometimes. If I try on, like I'm trying on a pair of pants that I'm responsible for this, how does that shape what I see. Because if you're standing somewhere else, you may not see that because you're just in this isn't my fault. This happened to me versus I'm an active participant in this in some way. And I think with is it over now, there is a bit of reflection in that vein of trying to assess like, when did this end? How did it end? And Mm -hmm why did it end? And at mm-hmm. times that moment where you wake up and you feel, you know, kind of going off of what you said earlier, the the ambiguity of mm-hmm. things ending sometimes. I really wanted to talk about Say Don't Go. I have so many feelings, so many notes on Say Don't Go. I feel like it does such a phenomenal job of explaining what it is like to be in this hot and cold relationship, maybe anxious attachment. And even more specifically, what I think of is I dated someone in college. So much of what I did was a reaction 
to what he did or he didn't do. So like he cheated on me and I caused this huge scene and broke up with him. And not for one moment, Sam, did I think that he would be like, okay, we'll break up. Like I 100% was like, I I didn't even consider it. I was like, well, I'm breaking up with you. I think I literally said this to him. I was like, I can't accept this. I cannot, like I am, I would be so stupid to stay with you when you just cheated on me. So I must break up with you. But I did not actually mean it. I never imagined he would not say, don't go and stay with me. And then I was shocked and confused when he was like, okay, I guess we're broken up now. And I was like, what? I just like escalated and was meaner to him. And I think, right, if you think about this in the dynamic too of like, how women are portrayed in media and even just what was modeled to me with my parents, a lot of times the way I saw them fight was through escalation. My mom would leave. She would be like, well, I'm going to go to the mall or I'm going to go home or I'm going to go do this or whatever. It was a, And it was an escalation inviting a response, not an escalation of I'm taking care of myself or even I want to do this. It was like, I'm getting in the car and I want you to stop me from driving away so often that is modeled to a lot of us as just like a normal, healthy, regular relationship dynamic. And Mm -hmm. we don't even pause to ask ourselves like, is this what I want? Do I actually want to leave? Because we just automatically react. It's so true. Like these reactive responses to, to do everything we can to elicit the love that we're wanting. And the, with say, don't go, the theme that I felt was in that was breadcrumbing kind of this like i will ignore everything if you just confirm to me that i'm what i'm feeling is real right i will ignore all of the crap i will dismiss whatever i'll forgive you of everything if you just tell me you love me if you just say no i want you to stay it is not about whether you like them it's just about whether they like you Yes, it's wanting the validation. Yeah, I think it's so interesting too when you think about relationship dynamics and power dynamics and relationships too because a lot of times I think I relate to this song so much because I've been in relationships where I often purposely would wait until someone was interested in me and then I would date them like after they like wore me down essentially and after we were together, the dynamics would sometimes flip in some way where – you know, I went in having the power, quote unquote, and then that person would cheat on me or they would break up with me or they would pull away and then I would freak out. And it it was not because I even wanted to be with them. It was because I wanted to preserve the relationship and keep the status quo. So I just did what I thought I needed to do to flip the relationship back. And I tried to do that by escalating, by being mean, by saying I'm going to leave because then, right, if that person chases after you, you're kind of resetting the power dynamics a bit. But I think a lot of the bonus tracks of this song are kind of even what you were saying about jumping off of tall buildings. I mean, that's an intrusive thought that we could go down, right? It's again, it's I'm going to escalate to to try to get validation, to try to help me feel something, even if it's negative. I would rather feel anything than nothing. When we're in those seasons, toxicity pays off. In that moment when when we're so used to existing in kind of this fight or flight plane of, yeah. you know, because the word that came to my mind when you're describing these relationships is it's just about survival. Like, yeah, it's about fueling these spikes of serotonin and adrenaline 
and kind of staying in that euphoric space at the start of a relationship. And what I heard and what you were saying was this theme of survival. And I think that's a state of toxicity. When you're solely focused on the only way I know that this is real is if I feel uncomfortable and chaotic about it. But then when we get those insane bursts of serotonin and euphoria, and it's all of a sudden the super high high right after a really low low, that pays off. When you're in that frame of mind, that was the reward. Yeah, because you manufactured it in you some ways. You manufactured it. You created your own reality. So when you're in the low low and you're doing the push-pull game mm-hmm. and the dramatics and the, okay, how high do I have to jump to get him mm-hmm. to see how much I love him or how much he loves me, mm-hmm. right? You're 100% correct. We're, we're using toxicity to manufacture the outcome that we desperately want. And we just defined the early 20s of women. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's so messed up too, because if you think about media, right, it wasn't just like my parents who I saw this modeled with, is like, you think about rom-coms, right? It's like, she hates him. She cuts him off. Like, that is what we are taught love is, is the guy messes up. The girl says, I don't want to be with you. Don't call me. But he calls anyway. And it's so romantic. And we love it. <laughs> that he doesn't listen to us. <laughs> and he completely violates our boundaries. I remember when I was an undergrad, I was taking like a marriage and family class or something. And the professor was this old guy that literally like played Santa during Christmas. Like that was his claim to fame. And he would tell us all the time, like your movies and your songs are not real love. And mm. I remember the, I was like 21 at the time. I remember the girls and me in the class were like, Stop, like that's not true. Like, no, it is. Like you start getting experience under your belt and you start to see like, oh, I don't want that. I would feel deeply uncomfortable with you showing up at my house at 11 o'clock at night when I haven't heard from you for two months and I have somebody else here. Like the level of uncomfort that would come with that, I'm not stepping outside and all of a sudden being like, oh, this is what I've waited for. I mean, that is exactly how I would describe like meeting my husband is I would try to do some of this stuff because I didn't know how to be any other way. And he would just be like, okay, well, whenever you're ready to have a conversation, I'll be here. Feel better. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, yeah, it's, it's a complicated dynamic. It's something that, you know, I mean, and I think it does a real disservice to men too in the way that we talk about how the patriarchy negatively impacts men is, you know, we want the men that listen and respect boundaries to like to be rewarded, not the ones that do whatever the hell they want. Well, and it is that whole like, yeah. you know, the guy that's like <laughs> tall, dark, hard to get plays games. We're like, wow, like, because there's, there's yeah. such a weird confidence boost that comes when we can say we were mm-hmm. the one, we were the one that got him to say he loved me. Yes. We yes. We were the one. Absolutely. We were the one that got him. We tamed, we tamed him. him. We, we got him to settle down. We- this was awesome. Is there anything else that you wanted to, because I know we could talk for a lot longer and we probably will, but is there anything else that you felt like was really important to touch on? No, I think I, I think my thing would be to people who are listening is like, if this meant something totally different to you, that's, that's yeah. accurate too, because that's based off of your life experience and your lived experience and, you know, your truth. And I think when she says, I think it was maybe a, one of her shows or something, she said, I want you to take my songs and apply them to you. It doesn't have to be that this song is solely about Harry Styles crashed a snowmobile and left her alone on a boat. 
we right. all have those own moments that we can empathize with and connect with. So, yeah, if you think we're totally off base, like maybe we are in your world, but that's like, that would be my biggest takeaway is I think the beauty of these songs is they are so moldable and flexible to our yeah. own lives and our lived experience. 100%. I mean, that's what good art mm-hmm. is, is it's, we can all hear the same thing and interpret things totally differently. And yes, we are not the purveyors of truth <laughs> by no. any means. We just are therapists. So we see everything in a mental health lens. We just see everything as like <laughs> 10 times more complex than you think it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Sam, for joining me. Sam is also going to be back, everyone, to talk about Britney Spears Woo. and her memoir mm. and obviously all of the mental health aspects of that as well, which there are many. (laughs) Reach out to me. You can shoot me an email at amanda at amandaeywhite.com or you can call me at 813-444-8683. And you can ask Sam if there's any other Taylor Swift questions. And if if you love Taylor Swift and need more Taylor Swift, join me on my Patreon at patreon.com slash recoveredish. So thanks everyone. And we will be back next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy for my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 